0: Broadcasting from Purple Earth. It's all about food. Healthy soil, healthy plants, healthy people.
1: I'm afraid, sir, you have grabbed a weak grasp tropical gamut.
2: Your reality, sir, is lies and balderdash. And I'm delighted to say that I have no grasp of it whatsoever.
3: Welcome to a reality where everyone eats fresh, locally grown organic food. Welcome to a different reality. This is A Different Reality, number 502, Turning Dirt Into Food. We circulate with the largest gathering of organic farmers in North America. We talk about genetically modified organisms, the meaning of organic, and other issues facing the organic community. Then we get advice from a gardening expert on what a beginner can do to turn dirt, dead grass and leaves, and kitchen scraps into fresh organic produce. Spring is here. It's time to start digging. This week on A Different Reality. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to A Different Reality. My name is Abby Z. And I'm Rosie. And this is episode number 502 of A Different Reality, where we will talk about food. Before we go on to the rest of our show, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that happened this past week. We come before the microphones about 1130 at night Central Time in North America on Tuesday, April 5th.
4: In Seattle, Washington, the school district unanimously passed a comprehensive bill designed to give students healthy beverage and food choices. The bill includes a ban on food high in sugar and fat and prohibits contracts with beverage companies. The school district aims to improve food quality by using fresh, locally grown, organic, unprocessed, non-genetically modified, and non-irradiated food.
3: Now, the sounds of A Different Reality number 501, our first program, landing in the can, were still reverberating in the corridors of Purple Earth World Headquarters when this story flashed across the wires. We found out about it first in The Guardian, and most of the American media has kept it quietly buried while it's been droning on about Terry Schiavo and Michael Jackson. But this story is very significant since it deals with the fate of civilization itself. A new scientific study has come out called the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment Synthesis Report. Now, this is not just another academic paper. It's the first report of a major project that's already been going on for four years. 1,300 experts from 95 countries worked on this thing. They got guidance and participation from UN agencies, international scientific organizations, and development agencies. Um, Let me quote from their press release. The work is overseen by a 45-member board of directors, co-chaired by Dr. Robert Watson, chief scientist of the World Bank. Okay, these are some of the top scientists in the world. There's a World Bank guy running this whole thing, so I guess this shouldn't be a lefty point of view by any means. So anyway, after all of these scientists have worked for four years, checking out how well the planet is doing, what did they say? Approximately 60% of the ecosystem services that support life on Earth, such as fresh water, capture fisheries, air and water regulation, and the regulation of regional climate, natural hazards, and pests, all of these ecosystem services are being degraded or used unsustainably. Scientists warn that the harmful consequences of this degradation could grow significantly worse in the next 50 years. Any progress achieved in addressing the goals of poverty and hunger eradication, improved health, and environmental protection is unlikely to be sustained if most of the ecosystem services on which humanity relies continue to be degraded, said the study. Anyway, being eminent scientists, these people are thorough. They plan to publish every scrap of information. Quoting again, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment Synthesis Report is the first in a series of seven synthesis and summary reports and four technical volumes that assess the state of global ecosystems and their impact on human well-being. This report is being released together with a statement by the MA, Millennium Assessment, Board of Directors entitled Living Beyond Our Means, Natural Assets and Human Well-Being. Now we went on the internet and we got that statement. It's a 31 page PDF file. It's about one megabyte worth of download. They have this little introduction called running down the account. I'm only going to read the first few sentences which is called the bottom line. At the heart of this assessment is a stark warning. Human activity is putting such strain on the natural functions of Earth that the ability of the planet's ecosystems to sustain future generations can no longer be taken for granted. The provision of food, fresh water, energy, and materials to a growing population has come at considerable cost to the complex systems of plants, animals, and biological processes that make the planet habitable. As human demands increase in coming decades, these systems will face even greater pressures, and the risk of further weakening the natural infrastructure on which all societies depend. Now that's at the top of page 3. I'm going to skip to the very end, to the bottom of page 31. I'll let you check out the rest for yourself, including all of the charts and graphs and flowcharts and stuff like that. It's a surprisingly accessible and plain-spoken document for such a crowd of academics. Anyway, here's how the statement signs off. The overriding conclusion of this assessment is that it lies within the power of human societies to ease the strains we are putting on the nature services of the planet, while continuing to use them to bring better living standards to all. Achieving this, however, will require radical changes in the way nature is treated at every level of decision making and new ways of cooperation between government, business, and civil society. The warning signs are there for all of us to see. The future now lies in our hands. So the conclusion of all these scientists is that we're straining the carrying capacity of our life-supporting system, but that we can reverse these trends, but only if there are radical changes in the way nature is treated. And that's why we're here, to help design a different reality and to make it happen. If you want to know more, you can get all you'd ever want from www.maweb.org. That's www.maweb, as in Millennium Assessment Web.org. You can see the news release that they've got. If you're a scientist and you want to see the actual scientific report, you can get it there. If you're not a scientist, you want the statement of the Board of Directors titled Living Beyond Our Means, Natural Assets and Human Well-Being. It's a 31-page PDF file that is digestible by what the website calls the non-expert. Why does my heart
4: Oh, that's my soul?
3: any civilization, one of the main functions of that civilization is to provide the population with the basic survival necessities of food, clothing, shelter, health care and morale. In this segment we'll talk about food. Specifically, we'll talk about how we produce it and where the growth of organic agriculture fits into a sustainable civilization. Organic farming is done without the use of chemical fertilizers or pesticides the United States Department of Agriculture recently implemented a set of national standards to define and codify what organic means. We'll talk about how these standards are working out. We'll explore some ways in which organic doesn't necessarily mean sustainable. And while any farm produce with genetically modified content cannot be sold as organic, what happens when the pollen from a nearby field of a genetically modified crop blows on the wind and contaminates an organic crop. These are some of the issues that people in the organic farming movement are talking about these days. the last weekend of February, we got to hang out with the farmers for a couple of days.
0: It's the 16th annual Upper Midwest Organic Farming Conference and this year we had 1,750 people. And This is a conference by farmers for farmers who want to learn more about organic farming practices and for organic farmers who want to improve their farming practices. Yeah,
3: sure. That's Faye Jones. She's the grand poobah of this event. Actually, she's executive director of MOSES, the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Services, And this gathering is just one of its many functions.
4: Can you just give us a picture of what a day at the conference is like?
0: Smiling faces. That's the first thing you'll see. A sort of a glow from everybody. Each day there's a choice of about 25 workshops. We have 140 exhibitors and more organic food than you can imagine. You get here at 7 in the morning, it's a full organic breakfast, food all day long.
3: Snack tables are like buffets.
0: They are buffets. It's all about food. That's really what organic farming is about, food. Healthy soil, healthy plants, healthy people.
3: After we got done talking to Fay, we decided to check out one of these snack tables.
4: There are snack tables all over this conference, and um, let me just give you a rundown of some of the things that are here right now. Various
3: locations all over the Labyrinth, right?
4: Correct. There are pumpkin bars, there are fresh cheese curds.
3: More pumpkin bars and more cheese curds.
4: Jam and bread, and in some places there's uh, nut butters.
3: And cheese curds.
4: And cheese curds. Organic fruit of all kinds.
3: And more cheese curds.
4: And milk. Oh, there's coffee, of course. Lots and lots of coffee. I like the cheese curds. We all have to have coffee to fuel our way through a, a good conference.
3: And to get up early enough to be at this conference. Correct. This is where we met a friend of ours, a professor at a local university. He, too, was sampling the pumpkin bars.
4: What am I going? I'm learning. What are you learning? I'm learning.
3: So this is a day that you're not teaching, you're learning instead. I'm always learning. A lot of that learning takes place out on the trade show floor. Anyone with a product or a message to market to the organic farming community has a booth set up here and they have filled the main floor of this basketball arena. There are organic food companies, purveyors of farm implements and bulk seed, advocacy groups and lots of attendees milling around
5: to come here and see how lively and how many people are really, really involved in this whole organic food movement. But, But holistic living goes way beyond food. I think it goes into the solar world. I think it goes into the bicycling world, alternative energy world here. And I think to come here is just an inspiration to see how many people we have in this area are really involved in trying to do positive things for the Earth. That
3: was Roger Birch. We'll hear more from him later. Coffee is a roaster based in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, and we are intrigued at their distribution system.
6: All of our coffee in the Twin Cities is delivered by bicycle, except for the outlying suburbs. Now we had to buy a biodiesel van.
7: Or when the snow is
4: like three feet deep, they'll take out the biodiesel van.
6: I mean, a bicycle is the most efficient transportation device ever invented by man. And the biodiesel is 100% biodiesel. You know, those are just, you know, materials from the earth. Where do you get your uh, fuel? Uh, It's from the Cannon Valley Co-op in Minnesota. It's soy. It's soy. And they are the only ones that would deliver it in a small enough quantity for us, which is a 55-gallon drum. My name is Steven Eisenmenger, and I'm working for Peace Coffee this weekend.
7: And I'm Molly Nutting, and I'm also representing Peace Coffee this weekend.
3: Involvement in organic farming is not necessarily limited to those in the
1: countryside. My name is Brian Noy, I'm a student at the University of Minnesota studying environmental education and sustainable agriculture. I grew up on a large industrial factory farm in southern Minnesota. I couldn't take that and I got up to the city and realized I still needed a farm in some sense, so I'm working on the community gardens there. Almost all of them are completely organic. Lots of times it's small residential lots, maybe 20 to 30 families come in and have 20 by 20s. I'm hoping to uh, learn how to become a little more effective in organizing these, uh, these gardens when I go back.
3: Learning new skills, new techniques, and networking and seeing old friends is something that brings a lot of people to the Farming Conference.
8: I'm Bets Reedy, I'm retired and so I'm farming more or less full-time, raise sheep.
4: I'm Diane Crane and I'm the assistant sheep person. So I wondered, why sheep?
8: Well, first of all, because they're ecologically sound. They make more sense than any other kind of livestock in this kind of geology. We've got the farm totally in grass. We, we do sheep and hay, and that's it. And we do as little as possible to the sheep. Um, I don't like babying them. We're keeping the soil on the farm and improving the soil and producing meat and fiber. I do raise purebred sheep because I like the challenge of breeding. This is a breed that does very well on grass and produces delicious lamb. And one of the things I really like doing is selling breeding stock because I get to deliver animals and meet people all over the country and they tend to be really nice people and that's a lot of fun I enjoy that part a lot
0: that's one of those areas where you can't count income
4: exactly because the delivering the breeding stock is is the vacation it's the social life uh or part of it it's um uh, a lot of things, besides just the business of loading up an animal and driving at a certain distance and, and getting a check for it. So we have this big party, roast the lamb. One way you could say that's an expense, because we're pulling an animal out of the flock and, and roasting it, eating it, and we can't sell it. And the other, it's the best party of the year, and all <laughs> it costs us is a lamb.
3: Now we know that any kind of farming, especially dealing with any kind of livestock, can be a lot of hard work. I wondered whether the rewards made all of the hard work worth it.
8: Do you ask all farmers that? <laughs> if, if I were in it for the, for the money, I wouldn't be here. If I were looking for money, I'd be doing something else. I spent some time on the Navajo reservation a long time ago. I lived up in the mountains with an old Navajo shepherd who was also a weaver. And I was there at lambing time and I just loved the animals. I loved going out in the morning and checking the ewes, and she taught me to weave, Navajo style, to spin, and I came home and got my first sheep. An awful lot of people are going to what they call woolish sheep, hair sheep, just because the wool isn't worth a whole lot. I don't think that's a good idea. Sooner or later, (laughs) we're going to want to wear those wool sweaters again.
3: (laughs) We'd like to thank these wonderful women for their time. Their attitude toward the land is typical of that of many people we found at this conference. Back on the trade show floor, we met someone from the government who really was there to help.
7: I'm Stephanie Bamer. I'm with the Alternative Farming Systems Information Center, which is part of the National Agriculture Library of the USDA. And I'm a librarian there, and I help people find information about sustainable, alternative, and organic farming. Our role is to help people find information about how to do organic production in certain crops, what kind of alternative crops are out there that are available, and provide information on how to grow those, how to market those, and what kind of regulations or other types of information like that are in place governing the growing or selling of agricultural products. Some of our biggest customers for that actually are people who are inmates that are looking for opportunities in agriculture when they get out and they want to start planning for their farms, and then also people who are in the developing world that don't really have internet access.
3: It was nice to meet Stephanie, and it's good to know there is some support for organics in the USDA. Unfortunately, the people working on organics constitute a very exclusive clique within that agency. I talked to somebody who should know.
6: My name is Jim Riddle, longtime organic inspector. I currently chair the National Organic Standards Board and for a number of years have chaired the Minnesota Department of Agriculture's Organic Advisory Task Force, it's called.
3: Would you say that the federal government has been extremely supportive of organic agriculture?
6: Well, no. The USDA budget from 2004 was $82 billion. The budget for organic programs is $11.9 million. That's one one-hundredth of a percent of the total USDA budget.
3: Or to put it another way, for every $100 the government spends on agriculture, the organic part of the industry
6: gets a penny.
3: Isn't the organic part of the food market a little bigger than that?
6: About 1% of the food market is organic. So if we were getting our fair share, that would be $820 million annual budget for an organic program. A
3: hundred times as much? Uh, Yes. So, for every $100 we Americans spend on food, we spend about a dollar or so on organic food. For every $100 our government spends on agriculture, it spends a penny on organic agriculture. We're not getting our fair share. It looks like the organic industry will have to manage its explosive growth on its own. So what other issues does the organic industry
0: face? We talked to Faye Jones. There's two or three looming issues that really threaten organic farmers. One of them is GMO contamination from conventional crops. The other is the continued issues with the USDA trying to not have the kind of stringent standards that the organic community has established.
3: How is the government messing with the standards? Aren't the organic standards a done deal?
0: Actually, the standards have been set in place for a long time. It's how you interpret the standards. So there's there's some question about uh, things like interpreting pasture. What does access to pasture mean? And how do you apply the exceptions to that? If it's 50 below outside in a snowstorm, you, you don't let your, your dairy cows outside. That's an exception. You, you shouldn't be able to keep them in the barn just because you don't have enough pasture.
5: Roger Birch, and I am the organic produce buyer at People's Food Co-op here in La Crosse. I've purchased and sold the organic produce in La Crosse for 12 years now.
3: So these days, how does Roger feel about the meaning of organic?
5: USDA standards being influenced by lobbyists and big businesses watering down You know, the interpretation of organic might not mean as much as it did 20 years ago, I guess, is what I would say. You can use a lot of things now organically that were not allowed 20 years ago, and the bigger organic growers are using things small idealistic growers would not use previously, but as their business has grown and they're in an economic force, they'll use it to have a crop. I think a lot of people who have been buying organic food or have been growing organic food have a little bit of disillusionment with the industrialization of organic. And I see now a lot of people really wanting to know their growers, they want local distribution, they want us to carry products that are grown and distributed locally as much as we can, that's huge because then it allows all the young people who are coming in on the farming end of it to have an outlet and have economic viability to get themselves established. So,
3: organic farming is a way for a lot of small local farmers to get that price premium that makes the difference between a viable business and financial disaster. And a new generation is inheriting the time-honored art of turning dirt into food. This enables more and more of us to have good, fresh, organic food coming to us from our own neighborhoods. But a lot of food is sold as organic that no longer fits the image that many of us associate with that label. Many of the biggest corporate titans in the food world have their fingers in the organic pie. Is our food organic when it's grown on factory farms thousands of miles away? Are we doing the right thing for the environment when our organic food is flown across continents on jumbo jets? I put this hypothetical question to Roger some locally grown carrots that may not necessarily be organic versus some organic carrots but they were grown on a corporate organic farm in california which is two thousand miles from here which is the better carrots for the consumer to gravitate towards
5: i would say the locally grown ones being on retail i run into people who cannot have any kind of chemicals in their food at all have great medical problems allergies so their california you know it would be available to them How I see the system work is you have people growing in California and you have people picking and packaging in California, putting it on a refrigerated truck, diesel-fueled, five, six miles to the gallon, driving it across the United States to a warehouse in Chicago, Minneapolis, storing the food in a huge warehouse. Then taking the food out of that warehouse onto a truck and bringing it to a store, and then we hold it in a cooler, then we put it into a display refrigerated case, and then the customer comes and gets it and takes it home to their refrigerator. So the amount of energy that we are using to make sure that we have year-round organic food from California, South America, Central America, it is not a viable system. For me, in the last five or six years, I've continually seen the quality of the crops from out west decrease in quality. So if we want to eat in a way that's most sensitive to the environment, that best promotes
3: sustainability, to blindly chase the organic label is not necessarily the best way to go. Transportation and storage and the massive infrastructure that support them are a big part of the food we eat. Besides, if we support our small local growers, that will encourage them to move towards organics.
5: Locally, case in point, Harry Hoke Orchard is an IPM, Integrated Pest Management grower. He's had great success in all the co-ops. They beg for his stuff, even though he's not certified organic. Well, what has it done? It's given Harry a lot of money, and it's given him an insight to the co-ops where Harry is now starting to recertify blocks of his orchard into organic production. He's going to take a chance now and do organic because he has a backup economic plan of being able to use integrated pest management. Harry Harry is a man who goes to his retail stores and does demonstrations. People see his face, and that's, I think, the main thing. People want to see the face of the grower, and then there's a trusting relationship. I also think it educates the consumer Consumers where their food comes from and if you have somebody who's not organic when they come in and they see wow, I'm gonna get this kind of money for going organic they're gonna move into that direction
3: ah uh, yes the dollar signs lighting up the eyeballs but then these local growers often find their prices undercut by products imported from several time zones away Growers in California, in spite of all of this expense, they're able to move their food 2,000 miles and still undercut the price of somebody that's just down the road. How do
5: they do that? Well, I would call it high-tech slave labor. Labor is now contracted by a grower. Therefore, they don't need to pay them union wages. A contractor hires these people They will live in the most unbearable conditions, 10, 12 people in broken down trailers in these little rural trailer ghettos out in California. They now have to supply their own tools in a lot of cases. They have no insurance. I call it high-tech slave labor. The people locally try to pay a very sustainable wage. In other
3: words, by choosing our produce on the basis of price alone, we are contributing to the slave labor conditions that Roger talks about. It's usually worth paying a few extra pennies to know that the people who do the work are treated fairly. In other words, that they're paid a wage that they can live on. It's labor standards that, to a pretty significant degree, define the fair trade movement. Fair trade is a label often found on things like coffee and chocolate, products that are imported from what are usually tropical third world countries. Fair trade is a label that is not yet defined legally in a way that organic is today. Without the fair trade label, you can assume that these products were grown in unsustainable conditions and that the people who actually do the heavy manual labor are treated rather brutally.
4: My name's Jessa Thompson with the People's Food Co-op in La Crosse.
6: Chris Olson, La Crosse, People's Food
3: Co-op as well. Of all the great food and great coffee being served at the Upper Midwest Organic Farming Conference, good chocolate was conspicuous in its absence. The local food co-op had a booth on the trade show floor, and it was the only place with chocolate, good fair trade chocolate. Given that there have been tales of child labor on many chocolate plantations, is it more important to look for organic chocolate or for
4: fair trade chocolate? Unless it says fair trade, it could well be uh, using this child labor. That's why I don't look for strictly organic. I look for fair trade first and foremost. Looking for fair trade is concerning myself with the way others are treated and... Organic would be treating myself, my own body, good.
1: Organic is not necessarily fair trade, and fair trade is not necessarily organic. Usually if somebody goes as far as to make something fair trade, they usually will will do an organic as well, because it's just, you know, you're doing one extreme, you might as well go the other.
3: Well, that's it. Why not have it both ways? Let's have it be fair trade and organic. And it's out there. It's really good. If you're already buying good quality dark chocolate... A bar of this stuff just costs a small amount more than what you're paying already. finish our look at the things being talked about in the organic farming community these days, we'll hear a lot about GMOs. GMOs are genetically modified organisms. Back when we were kids in science class, they taught us about the double helix, those spiral-shaped molecules that contained the complete genetic code describing a unique organism. Modern science has developed the ability to tinker with that genetic code, transferring genes from one species to another. With little or no thought to the impact these mutant organisms could have on the natural balance, they've been released into the wild to inevitably pollute the gene pool with their bizarre implanted DNA. Now they're in widespread use in our food and the Frankensteins promoting this technology are looking at genetically modified trees and genetically modified livestock. I was a little Catholic boy sitting in church when the Supreme Court legalized abortion the words coming from every pulpit we're talking about playing god now if abortion is playing god isn't tinkering with the genetic code also playing god i put this
6: question to jim riddle Clearly, the biotech scientists are playing God. They're crossing species boundaries, things that could never mate naturally, crossing bacteria with grain, crossing strawberries with fish, things that do not normally reproduce. So they're creating novel organisms that have never existed in nature before and certainly aren't part of the creation.
3: When they were initially lobbying to get this technology approved, The biotech companies used to argue that use of GMOs would lead to a reduction in pesticide use. The biggest promoter of GMOs is Monsanto, and one of their biggest lines of GMO seed is what they call Roundup Ready. It's a crop genetically designed not to die when the crop is hit by Roundup, a weed killer produced by Monsanto. So has the increased use of GMOs led to the green nirvana that we were once promised?
6: They have led to increase in herbicide use, for instance, uh, since they've been introduced. And there are declines in butterfly populations since they've been introduced. I mean, there's a lot of things that are negative consequences that we're just now finding out about.
2: My name is John Peck. I'm with Family Farm Defenders. I'm the executive director. And our group is composed of farmers, consumers, other people concerned about uh, food farm issues from all across the country. And our mission is basically to promote, you know, sustainable agriculture, fair trade, farm workers' rights, healthy food, animal welfare, and this—the just food system for all.
3: John Peck comes to us through the miracle of cheap audio equipment, the kind that startup webcasters use as a backup when their main equipment breaks down. John is the kind of activist who is armed with a handout covering any issue of concern to his organization and the small farmers it represents. He tracks the relevant news. He gets the word out whenever anything new and important comes up. Given that the government wonks always talk about improving our export markets, why do they keep promoting GMOs after they've been soundly rejected by our export markets?
2: For years we've been arguing that by promoting GMOs, the U.S. government and public agencies are acting against farmers' best interests because they deny us export markets. So we've basically lost all our export markets.
3: So what's this got to do with organics? As long as organic farmers don't plant GMO crops, they shouldn't have anything to worry about,
6: right? The other side of it is that a number of these crops are either wind-pollinated or insect-pollinated, and you can't keep pollen from crossing borders. So there's a real genetic trespass issue where these transgenic DNA that belongs to the biotech companies legally, they patented it, and the farmer who plants it doesn't even own it. They don't buy the seed. They sign a licensing agreement to plant the GMO crop. So the DNA still is the property of the biotech company. So if that property then is causing harm to an organic or any other non-GMO farmer and they're losing market, you'd think that the biotech company would be liable. Just like if, you know, someone's bull gets out and causes harm, well, the owner of the bull is liable for the damage that that bull causes to someone else. But right now, the biotech companies have no insurance to cover these kind of losses because the insurance industry knows that this is such a large risk, they call it unquantifiable risk. Risk, so they won't cover them and the liability insurance that farmers carry don't cover it either so it's really a whole new frontier of risk that the organic community is facing so if
3: the GMO pollen lands on your organic corn you can't sell that corn as organic anymore and you lose a lot of money amazingly enough if that happens Monsanto sues the organic farmer
2: Monsanto does have a hundred lawyers their job is to basically go out and sue farmers. These extortion letters, I mean, I have a copy of one from Canada here. I mean, they basically send it to a farmer saying, our Pinkerton agents have detected that there's GMO in your field, pay us the royalty fee or else we'll see you in court. And, and here's the amount you owe us, $35,000. And you're just supposed to fork that over or be sued. And, and this is like an extortion letter. And this is the type of stuff they do. It's very heavy-handed, well, it's, you know, mafia-style racketeering.
0: Where does the buck stop? Is that with the company that produced the product? Is that with the farmer that planted the product? These are all questions that are unanswered. It's a part of why this is such a looming, huge crisis.
3: The very existence of GMOs threatens the very existence of organic food as we know it. The mutated pollen is now in the environment, and it's everywhere.
0: In remote mountains in Mexico where there's never been GMO corn, they're having GMO contamination. And the mad scientists
3: are intent on pushing their insanity even further.
2: But now, if we're going to start introducing, say, GMO alfalfa, perennials, I mean, these things are going to be out in the environment for a long time. That pollen's going to go two, three, four miles. Can we guarantee that all the alfalfa in the ocean will be contaminated with GMOs? What's going to happen to the organic dairy industry if GMO alfalfa is allowed?
3: Oh, let me guess. The GMO alfalfa will contaminate every field in the Midwest, and there will no longer be any organic feed available for organic dairy cows. Sounds like bad news to me. Well, I woke up this
0: morning, looked out my door, I could tell my milk cow, I could tell about the way she looks. So if you see my milk, I yeah, want you Drive her on
6: Cause
4: I ain't
2: had no milk
4: This has got to be the cutest little stuffed cow I have ever seen Okay, onward Ooh. Enough petting the cow You're gonna be sorry As we started working on this week's show, we heard the news of the anniversary of Bob Will's 100th birthday. And then while looking for music for this show, I found a copy of Asleep at the Wheels CD, Ride with Bob. Guess what? They're connected. According to the website cmt.com, which features country artists, Asleep at the Wheel just finished performing a stage show in Austin, Texas, their hometown. Entitled A Ride with Bob from Austin to Tulsa, it tells Bob Will's story from his early years in the cotton fields to the recording sessions, radio shows, and Hollywood. Asleep at the Wheel's style has always been heavily influenced by Bob Will's infectious blend of country, swing, and jazz. They're hoping to bring it to the big screen someday. Let's hope that day is soon.
1: My name is Scott Weaver. First credential I have, I've been doing this for about one well, 8 years now. I do have a degree and I'm a certified teacher in a, a, a technique of organic gardening called Grow biointensive.
3: Well, we run into a lot of people that want to be gardeners or at least want to do some gardening in their yard to grow some of their own food but they just don't have a clue what to do first. So say, for instance, that I, I'm coming to you. We have no tools in the garage. We have nothing but a lawn in the backyard. We've uh-huh. just moved in here <laughs> and never gardened before. And I'd like, to, I'd like to grow some of my own food. What's
1: the first thing I should do? The first thing you should do is uh, get rid of your lawn. <laughs> That's how I, I approach it. We moved into our home about three years ago. And the first step we took was to get rid of the lawn.
3: Um, How did you go about getting rid of it? Did you dig it out? Did you just rototill it? Th- did you till the sod in? Did you peel the sod off? Did
1: you- I'm I'm a believer in I don't use many mechanical tools. Basically, my tools are a potato fork, a spade, a flat rake, which is, you know, those hard rakes. A hard rake. Yeah, a hard rake. And a few other uh, holes and a few other tools. So what I do about... Just the- a
3: regular bread and butter shovels too? Yeah, okay. yeah.
1: Shovels work. Basically, what we did was just loosen up that sod, rip out that the root structure, flip it over, and if you want to chop it up, but um, we would first just flip over that sod and let it break down. Okay. I mean, really, ideally, if you want to garden right away, start small, and if you want to go on beyond that, that's great. Now, what about planters? Some people don't have yards.
3: You know, what Mm -hmm. would you suggest for people that don't have yards? How big of planters should they get? What kind of plants should they grow? What should they consider when deciding what to grow?
1: For container growing, first and foremost, of course, is space. Right. Looking for plants that can grow in a uh, kind of a compact area. Also, uh, a key element would be about how much light. Okay. You know, you need at least seven hours of light to produce uh, a, a good crop of anything. So if somebody's vegetables. in an
3: apartment in New York or Berlin or someplace and only has a north-facing window, they're going to have to look for plants that can handle not much light. Not
1: much light, right? And which mm-hmm. is, it could be like salad greens, okay, um, a few herbs, okay, could handle it. Um, maybe radishes, something that grows quick. And those crops that don't need much light tend to grow well um, in containers because they don't need much area to grow, like salad mixes. And lettuce. Lettuce. And spinach. And spinach.
4: What about someone who just has patio space and they want to do container gardening? If
1: we assume they have enough light, um, you can definitely trellis stuff. You can trellis tomatoes, cucumbers, mm-hmm. things that like to grow vertical would work really well on patios. Peas, beans, um, pole beans. Mm-hmm. Again, assuming that you have enough light. Um, if you want to grow a crop like tomatoes, you're going to need a big container they need a lot of food and a lot of water.
3: Now, what should people look for as far as their
1: soil medium? First, I would say you need compost, either in your soil or in the potty mix that you're growing. You need that soil and potty mix to be loose. It has to have um, able to incorporate air in it. If you're in a container, you want something that's a soilless mix. It might work mm-hmm. the best. Mm-hmm. which has a lot of peat moss in it.
3: So where would somebody get that?
1: You can get that at almost any hardware store now or a plant growing center. Or a
4: garden center.
1: Yes, that's what I want to say, a garden center.
3: If somebody wants to, with the soil that's in the ground, somebody wants to figure out what's this soil good for, what's it not good for, how do they find those things out?
1: The simplest way is to experiment. Plant something in the ground and observe and watch it. And again, you can kind of hedge your bets. I'm going to keep saying it, is by applying compost. Compost tends to have an effect on the soil, and the soil in turn has an effect on the plants, where it kind of compensates for the deficiencies, um, for any disease that might be in the soil. Mm -hmm. Adding compost is a key to do that, and then then observe your plants. Right. Now, compost isn't necessarily something that people have to go out and buy, is it? Nope. And here in the City of La Crosse, you can get it for free um, at the recycling center
3: and people could make their own compost, how do they go about doing that?
1: You can start off by getting some kind of small container and collecting your kitchen scraps. That's coffee grounds with a filter, tea bags, all the scraps you get for cooking, eggshells. Just start collecting that. What about container. people
3: that eat meat? What about meat scraps? Would they want to include that in their compost as well?
1: Not in large quantities, no. And the reason why is because I guess some people get afraid of attracting other animals to their, you know...
3: Rodents. Rodents, and, and, yeah. Rodents and squirrels yep. and cats and yep. dogs yep. And, and, yep. and mousy digging things. Yeah. And, but ideally for a city garden, they probably would want a separate separate out their meat yeah. waste from their vegetable compost. I, I would recommend. So it. you're talking mostly vegetable, vegetable. scraps, mm-hmm. eggshells, things like that.
1: Yes. Okay. So that's that's one component. Um, okay. And the other component would be if you have a yard and if you have trees or grass, rake up the dry brown stuff. Okay. The kitchen scraps I would call green. The brown material, which is a carbon material, is okay. is the dried leaves or or dried grass clippings. It should be yellow or brown, shouldn't be green, and then... What about dead leaves? Yeah, dead leaves are perfect. And with those two components, you have the beginning of a compost pile. Um, what I recommend is always adding them together, fairly equal amounts, and just mixing them together and watering it. Now what we
3: do, we keep a small pail underneath our kitchen sink, and we just yep. add our scraps to that. When it gets full, we take it out and dump it out. Yep. From what you're saying, you want to add the leaves, the, the brown material in equal amounts, so you're saying that when you dump the compost bucket, throw an equal amount of leaves and grass and stuff on that?
1: Yeah, you can have it sit right next to your compost pile. Right. That's what we do at our house.
4: I would just like to add that you want to make sure that that bucket has a lid on it. Yes.
3: In some cities, people might be concerned about the idea that you know, if you got compost out in the yard that it would smell. What do you do about that? Or does the, the throwing the grass and leaves on there just kind of prevent that?
1: It should. Another trick you can use is mm-hmm. that I add a little bit of topsoil. Okay. Onto the green stuff. What that does is incorporate microbes, which help break down the soil right. and covers up the smell.
3: Soil is not just dirt. It's a living medium. Yes. and And all those little microbes are an essential part of it. Yep. And they are the microbes that break down all mm-hmm. the food waste into
1: mm-hmm. um, something that can eventually turn back into food. Typically, you want to maybe stir it up and put a little bit of water on it, and that should take care of it.
3: What is the next thing that the homeowner, the gardener, mm-hmm. the person that's maintaining the compost pile, what's the next thing that person has to do to turn that into something that can be used on the garden?
1: There's different ways of building compost piles. If you add in a little bit at a time, my recommendation mm-hmm. is to just, just stir it a little bit when you add the new materials. Get a fork. Get your or, potato fork or yeah, something. Yeah, just, just stir it on. Kick it around. Some people even get a piece of steel, piece of rebar. Mm-hmm. Two or three feet long, and just poke holes in it, and just stir it. And so there is a little bit of management. So you want to, to a aerate it. Aerate a bit. it exactly. Okay. That's what you. want. The microbes in that pile need air. They need right. air, water, just like.
3: So is there a point that it's done? I'm just thinking because if you're always adding material to yep. it, there's going to be fresh material up high on the top. You yep. know, what? How do you get that finished material out of the bottom? Do you just empty it out and turn it over? or what, what do you do?
1: Some people use different systems. Some people will just start scooping the finished material off the bottom. Okay. And you know if it's finished, if, if there's very little or no, I call it parent material, that you don't see any dried leaves, any orange rinds left in there. Right. It's dark and it looks like fresh soil and it smells. It's almost like you're breathing air. You bring it up to your face and you smell it. Okay. It's like you're breathing fresh air in. That's when it's ready. Like you explained, you're always putting fresh stuff on top. Scoop the um, mature compost off from the bottom. Some people might even build one pile at one time, like you build it up over several months, let it sit and start a new pile. Okay. And that one pile you initially build will be done from three to six to almost a year. You'll, mm-hmm. you'll see it, you'll observe it. It takes, you'll, you'll see when it's done. Um, so that, that's one way of doing it.
3: Okay, we've talked about getting started. We've talked about checking out soil. As far as somebody wants to figure out what to plant, I mean, the first thing you have to figure out is what do you eat a lot? What, right. what is there that yeah. what if I could grow it, I would eat it and it would save me a lot of money mm-hmm. from having to buy the stuff at the grocery store every week? Then, well, what can we grow? And that's going to vary by climate. We're here in the upper Mississippi Valley of North America where, you know, there's a long cold season, but when it is warm, it's kind of lush and moist and and, and really warm. There may be people listening to this that live in deserts, that Mm -hmm. live in tundras. What can be grown is very different than what can be grown here. My suggestion is always just if there's people that are gardening in your neighborhood, see what they're growing. Exactly. You know, if there's commercial, yeah. If there's commercial agriculture in your neighborhood, what are they growing? What have other people discovered mm-hmm. that's optimized for your climate?
4: What are the resources that you would say people could use to get more information?
1: First and foremost, check the Internet. There's tons and tons of information out there. I'm fairly young, but I'm old school. I use books. (laughs) I use lots of books.
3: (laughs) Are there any particular sites or any particular books that...
1: There's one book that I read a lot. It's called How to Grow More Vegetables Than You Ever Thought Possible on the Smallest Mm -hmm. Amount of Area. And that's the Grow Biointensive Method. That's a good resource. They have a book before that. It's called Sustainable Agriculture or Sustainable Gardens. Um, You have to check on it. Do you know the author's name? Yep. It's um, John Jevons... For How to Grow More Vegetables and for Sustainable Gardens is John Jevons and Carol Cox. There's a plethora of books out there. I'd say find one that suits you. There's mm-hmm. books out there about no-till, right. mulching, roof stout, a very right. famous way of gardening, which is lots of com- lots of mulch. And
3: I'm a big fan of lots of mulch because I'm into this low maintenance thing. Right. You know, it's like Everyone I stick these things in the ground, I don't want to have to go out and mm-hmm. pull weeds every day. Mm-hmm. If you've got mulch, that prevents the weeds from growing. Yep. It holds your moisture into the ground, mm-hmm. it holds your heat in the ground, mm-hmm. or if it's really in hot season, it, it will keep the ground cooler in really extreme yep. hot days. Mm-hmm. And then it builds the soil. We'll pile a foot of leaves on the garden in the fall. Yep. And by spring, they're gone.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Everyone has everyone has their own way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And if it works for you, and I think if it's in turn doing good to the earth, I think it's a good way to go. I myself do more labor intensive. And I, I do some mulching too. But you know, I do a mix and match. You're I'm, there all I'm, the time I'm too. Great, you're right. It's kind of my it's my way of life. It's not just yeah. a passion or obsession. It's just who I am now.
3: Thank you, Scott. This was fun.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed it.
3: We are paying an exorbitant ecological price for the food that we eat today. Land is saturated with mysterious chemicals to sustain mile upon mile of genetically engineered monocultures. Water is pumped hundreds of miles to, for instance, grow rice in the desert. An energy-intensive and transportation-intensive system of highways, railroads, air freight, truck terminals, refrigerated warehouses, and a whole lot more, is maintained to, in many cases, bring agricultural commodities to places that are perfectly capable of producing them themselves. Meanwhile, the people that handle our food as it's growing are overworked, underpaid, and often abused. In much of the world, and especially in the United States, farm workers are treated like a cheap commodity— just like the food they work their tails off to produce. Too many farm workers and small farmers live in poverty, just so that the food industry can take a huge profit on the food that they sell us. Meanwhile, productive farmland is being sacrificed for strip malls and cookie-cutter houses, where most of the land ends up under blacktop parking lots or ends up growing grass, lawns, instead of food. The population is growing while our food source is disappearing. This is not sustainable. Organic farming methods have sustained civilization for thousands of years, and there's no need to abandon them now. Introducing toxic chemicals and mutated organisms to the environment is too risky. We don't know what the long-term effects will be over the coming generations. Everybody seems to love the image of the small-scale family farmer, and I think there's good reason behind that. He or she is someone who nurtures the natural processes that turn dirt into food, and such magic must be honored. But there is no honor in introducing mutated seed, spraying an evil brew of chemicals, or abusing hired labor. Sustainable agriculture has to mean that you don't put anything onto the land that the land itself can't produce and regenerate at the same rate you're using it. If fuel is needed to run farm machinery, it should be produced on the farm. I think there's a lot of potential for farmers to form co-ops to produce their own fuel, such as biodiesel and alcohol fuels. Running machinery is only sustainable if farmers can produce the fuel themselves. Sustainability also has to mean that we eat the food that grows in and around our own communities. It is wasteful to ship in food from thousands of miles away if that food can be grown locally. So what can we do now? Plant a garden, even if it's just a window box. If you have kids, get them involved. They love witnessing the magic of seeing a small seed turn into a plant full of food. Once you have experienced the magic of turning dirt into food, you'll become addicted and find yourself planting and eating more and more of your own food every year. Start going to farmer's markets. The food will be fresh, of higher quality, from your own neighborhood, and most of the time you get to meet the person who grew it. Ask around your farmer's market or food co-op about CSAs. A CSA is community-supported agriculture. A farmer or a group of farmers make an arrangement with a group of people who need food. The buyers, the CSA members, pay a fee to the farmers, and every week each CSA member receives a box of fresh produce. It's a good deal for the farmers and a great deal for the members. Those are some ways to buy local, and it's also good to buy organic. Mainly, we must always think about where our food comes from and how it gets there. And if doing the right thing costs a little bit more, think about how much more we're getting for the money. We're supporting our neighbors so that good food will always be close at hand.
4: Homegrown's alright with me Homegrown is the way it should be Homegrown is a good thing Plant that bell and let
0: it ring Homegrown, Homegrown.
3: We have feedback from last week's show, is that correct?
4: That's correct. We played the show for a couple of friends, and we heard this. I'm loving this. It's really nice.
3: Cool. What else did we get?
4: Uh, I love the international music. The show sounds like it could be from anywhere in the world.
3: We hear from anybody else?
4: We happened to see our neighbor over the fence, and she said with a smile that she'd heard the show and liked it, especially the variety and mix of the music, and it sounded like we were really having a lot of fun.
3: We also heard from Bishop Joey of St. Stupid Day Parade fame. We thought we'd let him know that there was a report on the St. Stupid Day on our show, and he wrote back, just said, nice job. I will post a link on the one true site. Yay. I think that there's a lot
8: of uh, radio shows that are powered by... Electricity, but this is the first one that I've heard that's been powered by electricity. I think the world needs a little more of this. God knows uh, there's not enough.
3: If you have any feedback of your own, love letters, hate mail, or whatever, uh, you can get to us at net. Oops, we forgot.
4: Last week I read a poem titled Number 9 by Lawrence Ferlinghetti from A Coney Island of the Mind we forgot to give him credit for his poem
3: sorry a different reality is created produced edited and assembled by abby z and rosie of purple earth you can contact us through our website at www.purpleearth.net There's a hat on our website, and we would be oh so grateful if you can afford to throw some money into it.
4: We would be oh so grateful.
3: If you like the music you hear on this show, thank Rosie, our music director. This week's playlist is on our website. Soon, but not yet, we may have the links to where you can buy your own copies of these pieces of music. The music you heard this week was, beginning with our theme song, Lovers of Light by the Afro-Celt Sound System. Why Does My Heart Feel So Bad? from Moby. Then we heard Homegrown by Neil Young.
4: The Garden of Zephyrus from Dead Can Dance. And then we heard Colonel Bruce Hampton and the Aquarium Rescue Unit doing Swing.
3: Bela Fleck gave us Cheese Balls in Cowtown.
4: Down from Yo-Yo Ma and Bobby McFerrin, and then we heard V.D. Vu from Transmission.
3: Le Oms gave us the way out, and then we heard Dr. Didge doing street music.
4: Home on the Strange from R. Carlos Nakai Quartet.
3: We heard Jungle Madness by Martin Denny.
4: Journey of the Warrior from Tulku. and then we heard Willie Nelson's Milk Cow Blues.
3: And then we heard Asleep at the Wheel doing Milk Cow Blues.
4: Then we heard Bob's Breakdowns. From Asleep at the Wheel. And
3: 1212 by Medicine Drum. Next week on A Different Reality, we look into the great beyond. Just as A Different Reality went into production, Hunter S. Thompson died. So we prepared a small festival of Dr. Thompson's vicious irreverence. We'll finally play that segment next week. We'll delve into esoterica and metaphysics, because it is good to know that there are things we don't know and we must always explore to find the answers. Next week, we'll go beyond the beyond on a different reality.
1: I mean, Why am I going up?
4: I'm learning. Broadcasting from Purple Earth. Woo!